tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. What's up? This your boy Lil Duval. And check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Welcome to the show, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Ben. I'm Noel. Wow, this is like a very standard intro we're trying today. Yeah, we're going we're going straight for it. But we are only able to make this show, of course, with the assistance of our esteemed third member, uh, friends and neighbors, super producer Casey Pegram. Sort of a vanilla opening. Would you very say very white bread? A little homogenous. A little bit. Yes, yes. Uh, today we are well. Let's let's start in the modern day, Noel. Uh, for a long time, neither of us had ever been to Portland until pretty recently. It's true. I only spent a little bit of time there. I think you had a little bit more of a fully fleshed out Portland experience. <laughs> but will you tell me, Ben, is the the dream of the '90s in fact still alive in Portland? <laughs> yes. Uh, I I thoroughly enjoyed the town. I thought it was surprising. I was diplomatic enough not to directly mention the comedy show Portlandia to anybody. I'm sure that gets really old. I am sure it does. It's like when people visit our city and call it Hotlanta. Yeah. Only I would say this is even more egregious, probably. Mm-hmm. People running around and say, put a bird on it, Chuck. <laughs> yes. And Portland has this national reputation, at least, for being a very progressive city, right? Face tattoos are cool. Uh, marijuana is decriminalized. The streets are paved in marijuana, in fact, in Portland. It does have a particular smell. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in general, people would see it as sort of a, a bastion of left-leaning culture. Yeah. Yeah? Super chill. You know, you can you can buy a sandwich for a song <laughs> in Portland. <laughs> Literally. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it doesn't even have to be a good song. 
It's just a song. Yeah, a song. Um, or, you know, a little soft shoe. Or maybe you got a one-man band kind of Dick Van Dyke situation going on there. I did see a one-man band when I was there. Did you see that guy? No, I just pulled that out my, of, my, of my ear. Well, you are correct. And there, there are one-man bands in Portland. There are also uh, numerous amazing things, amazing bits of history. One of our coworkers, a guy named Nathan, is actually from Oregon. And he assured us that Portland is more of a cultural exception to the rule nowadays. Yeah, I could see that. I'm actually wearing my Timberline Lodge hat right now. Oh, you are. That I bought at the Portland airport. And as you might imagine, at the Portland airport, not a chain restaurant in sight, my friend. <laughs> All of the shops sell handmade artisanal goods. I bought some really cute little uh, pieces of pottery there for me mum. Oh, that's sweet of you, man. And this really dope hat. It is a great hat. Mm-hmm. So it's safe to say that you and I are, are fans of Portland and would travel there again in the future. Sure. At least modern Portland, right? Right. <laughs> I don't think I would want to travel there in a time machine to the yeah. past. Yes, yes. Today's episode is about the origins of Oregon, Portland in particular. Wow, one take. <laughs> or, or as it's called here, I'm in some of these uh, articles that we're looking mm-hmm. at, the Oregon country. Yeah, Oregon country. That might sound weird to some people. What is Oregon country? Yeah, I kept seeing it, and it was a little weird sounding, and it was confusing, but I figured it out with my internet sleuth skills. Um, What would now be modern-day Oregon, Washington State, and Idaho was all kind of clustered together in this one big old chunk of land collectively referred to as the Oregon country. Yeah, and this was, um, let's see, way back in 1818, right, the U.S. and Britain agreed to jointly occupy this area? Yeah, that seems like a like an odd couple kind of situation. Yeah. Um, and then I think the U.S. started getting a little greedy and being like, you know what, we kind of want this for our, for our own. We're going to turn this into some states. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because the British wanted to be in the area, in Oregon country, mainly to engage in the fur trade. That's right. Uh, and James K. Polk, um, who was uh, an expansionist president, mm-hmm. right, um, really wanted to make this our own and, and you know, not, not share, not go halvesies mm-hmm. with the Brits anymore. So that ultimately happened. They negotiated. Uh, they decided it wasn't worth going to war over it, the Brits did anyway. And um, there was some back and forth. And there's a really great slogan that uh, the Northerners used. Um, it was 54, 40, or fight. Mm-hmm. Um, and 54, 40 was talking about the coordinates, the latitude that marked the northernmost part of this territory. And during these negotiations, the U.S.'s first proposal was that the territory be cut in half, mm-hmm. right, with that with that border at the 49th parallel, and the British rejected it, and so the expansionists, many of whom were anti-slavery northerners, which is super important for this part of the story, yep. uh, they are the ones who called for more American aggression. Get out there. Be a big dog. 54-40 or fight. It's hard to say. You did really well with that, Ben. 54-40 or fight. It's tough. You it, didn't it, nail it, it. It's fun when you really get it right, though. It gives you a sense of accomplishment, as I'm sure they felt mm-hmm. when they finally arrived at a pretty decent deal with the Brits where they divided the territory uh, along the 49th parallel. Yeah, so that's pretty close to 54, I guess. Uh, what's the 40, though? A 54-40? 
like minutes, uh, divisions oh, of degrees. So it's like a decimal kind of, right? Yeah, kind yeah. of. Okay, yeah, yeah, interesting. Yeah. Interesting. So this is where we end up with Oregon um, needing, you know, to become a state. And when you become a state, what do you do? You have to have a state constitution. And as we know, constitutions are not generally made overnight. They often reflect common practices, goals, or even existing laws that a community has practiced or written down beforehand. And Oregon had its own pre-existing laws. In 1844, they passed something called the Exclusion Law. And this was this was enacted by the provisional government of the region at the time. What what did the Exclusion Law do? Yeah, it was this guy named Peter Burnett who was like a kind of an Oregon Trail kind of blazer, I guess. Peter Hardiman Burnett. Hardiman Burnett. And actually, spoiler alert, we're going to dig into him in a little more detail later in the show. Foreshadowing. Big time foreshadowing. But here's what this dude did, just just to give you a taste of, of what his medicine sure. was like. He was a former slave owner um, and has, has a really crazy resume, did all kinds of interesting things mm-hmm. in his life. But by all accounts, uh, a, a, a alarming, dastardly racist. Virulent racist. Yes, yeah. big time. So this exclusion law mm-hmm. um, that was enacted sort of pre- proper government and constitution, um, basically allowed slaveholders to hold on for dear life to those slaves for a maximum of uh, – for up to three years. And at first I was like, wait, is this is this because of emancipation? But then I'm like, no, that, that was decades later. This is 1844. That wasn't until like the 1860s. Right. And I realized, oh, no, Oregon outlawed slavery in yeah. the territory. Right. But here's the key. Okay, then, and then, if, then your thing is going to be like, oh, that's that's nice. What a great bunch of people. Yeah, okay. But but there's more. Um, so you had this grace period of three years, but then all of those freed black people were required to leave. Yeah, that's the thing. Uh, the government of Oregon passed this exclusion law of 1844, and in it they did place a ban on slavery with a requirement that slave owners eventually free their slaves. But they did this with the understanding that any African-American who remained in Oregon after they were freed would be flogged, whiplash, and forcibly expelled from the country. If they were caught in the Oregon country again within six months, then the punishment would be repeated. And then eventually... The law was amended in another version to substitute forced labor, so essentially slavery, instead of flogging. And then it was repealed in 1845. So this community was so racist that they they didn't even condone slavery. They were so such white supremacists. They just didn't want them around, like, at all. Mm-hmm. And there's there's some language we'll get into in, in a second, but I do just want to point this out. The uh, that law you mentioned about, about flogging or that the right. penalty was called the Burnett Lash Law because our buddy Burnett uh, was so into this that he he wanted to brand it with his own uh, his name. That was like his signature thing, and it required that um, or it declared rather that uh, offenders who refused to leave would be punished with, quote, not less than 20 or more than 39 stripes. Mm-hmm. And that would uh, that would be a cycle that would recur every six months until they left. And fortunately, this lash law 
did get amended and repealed. So as far as we know today, uh, no people were ever lashed as a result of that law. But this was just the first of three different laws like this that all were meant to ban people of color from Oregon country, which again at that point is like Washington, Oregon, and part of Idaho. Mm-hmm. It's a huge swath of land. That's right. Um, and uh, we're getting some of this information from a few different places. Mm-hmm. One of my favorites was a Washington Post article by Deneen L. Brown called When Portland Banned Blacks, Oregon's Shameful History mm-hmm. as an All-White State, or as I've seen it referred to as an All-White Utopia, kind of, right? That's, yeah. that's what they were after, at least. There's this weird history of intentional communities and utopian thinking in Oregon. So it's not not all examples are racist, but this definitely was. The idea for the people who were supporting this concept was that somehow society would be better if they all felt like, if they all somehow identified with the same ethnicity. Mm-hmm. Now, did they have the same sort of racism that would be common in the Northeast at the time, wherein, for instance, Italian or Irish immigrants or children of those immigrants are still considered not white enough? I don't know. But what was on the books was uh, specifically targeting people of color. In 1848, this provisional or territorial government passed a law making it illegal for any, quote, Negro or mulatto to live in Oregon country. But uh, they did have a provision for people who had Native American blood. Which they weirdly refer to as half-breeds. Because they're despicable people. They are despicable people, but it's interesting that all all it takes is just to get a little white in you. They really didn't like black people. Yeah. Yeah, that's what it boils down to. All right, Ben. Yeah. So it's state time, baby. Here we go. And what do you need to make a state, as we established earlier? Yeah, you need, um, you got to have some dirt. Mm-hmm. Um, you got to have a delineation between your dirt and the other people's dirt. You have to have some people yep. in both sides so oh, that you can differentiate. A constitution. There we go, yes. In 1857, the government of what would become Oregon was working on its constitution. They did a couple of things. Uh, they grossly plagiarized constitutions from other states at the time. Well, that's, a, you know, there's going to be some of that. Right. A, con- a constitution is not exactly a great work of poetry that you, you know, pilfering from is, is, is looked down upon. It's, it's almost sort of like stealing a, a boilerplate release form or something, right. you know. Yeah, I think that's a very good point. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag-A-Job's got a worker for that. 
With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Mint Mobile. You know, Ben, I got to say, one of the best parts of a spring cleaning is that post-clean clarity you get where you're like, man, how have I been living like this? What's wrong with me? <laughs> you're right. No, it's it's kind of like when you find out you've been paying a fortune for wireless when Mint Mobile has phone plans for 15 bucks a month when you purchase a three-month plan. It's time to switch to Mint Mobile and get unlimited talk, text, and data for 15 bucks a month. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash ridiculous. That's mintmobile.com slash ridiculous. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash ridiculous. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Being that Oregon was going to be a state in the U.S. and have voters and such, they asked about 10,000 residents to vote on the new state constitution, and they had three questions. Burning questions. Burning questions. One, do you vote for the constitution? Overwhelmingly, voters supported it. Two, do you vote for slavery in Oregon? And the voters of Oregon rejected the institution of slavery by a pretty wide margin. Yeah, also pretty overwhelmingly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then three, this is a quote, again, this is problematic language. They say, do you vote for free Negroes in Oregon? Hey, what? And the answer was? Oh, yeah, it was was, was a a no. Yeah. It was a big no. And they explicitly baked in this – Uh, racist language into their constitution. In fact, we have a quote from the state constitution. Yes, it it goes as such. Again, quoting some offensive language here. Uh, Quote, no free Negro or mulatto not residing in this state at the time of the adoption of this constitution shall ever come, reside, or be within this state or hold any real estate or make any contract or maintain any suit therein. And the legislative assembly shall provide by penal laws for the removal by public officers of all such free Negroes and mulattoes and for their effectual exclusion from the state and for the punishment of persons who shall bring them into the state or employ or harbor them therein. Right. That is bonkers. It is categorical as well. So, Pay attention, folks, to that very last line where it says that anyone who helps a person of color is also guilty in the eyes of Oregon law. And that's that's a terrifying thing, but it passed. People were supportive. Oregon became a state in 1859, and it was the only state in history. Only state. Only state in history so far uh, that entered as a whites-only state. So anti-slavery but only because they were such white supremacists. And that's mind-boggling. People in Portland are so nice. 
Yeah, it really does blow my mind. And it makes me wonder, like, why, like, Mississippi didn't try to do anything like this. Probably because there were just too many black people already living there. It was just, it would have been, like, a massive roundup kind of, like, mm. deportation kind of situation. And they were economically dependent. That's the controlling right. powers right. of the state were economically dependent on this. Because it feels like Oregon was probably pretty largely white already. And then the slaves that were there were kind of, like, imported kind of mm-hmm. for that purpose and then they free him and they give him the boot and and this largely worked there were a couple of examples though of uh folks trying to get around it mm-hmm. not very many though and one in particular of somebody being kicked out pretty heinously yeah vanderpool right that's right yeah in 1851 before the constitution was written and before Oregon became a U.S. state, but after these exclusion laws were in full swing, the owner of a saloon, restaurant, and boarding home, a fellow named Jacob Vanderpool, was forcibly expelled from the territory. Not because he did anything wrong, just because he was not white. Yep. Yeah, that's pretty... Oh, oh boy. Okay. He was literally, according to Salem Public Library records, he was literally, quote, reported for the crime of being black in Oregon, and Judge Thomas Nelson gave him 30 days to leave the territory. Yeah, I'm sorry. I keep pausing because this is just, like, hurting my my brain mm-hmm. um, and my heart. Uh, in an article from How Stuff Works, we spoke to Walida Imarisha, who's a professor in black studies at Portland State University, um, and she actually travels around Oregon kind of working on – nurturing some positive connections with Mm -hmm. the African-American community in in, in Oregon because it's still, spoiler alert to this day, pretty largely white. But here's how she sums up the whole thing. Quote, Oregon was birthed at this intersection of being anti-slavery and anti-black. But in no way was Oregon anti-slavery because they believed in racial justice. They were anti-slavery because they considered this to be white man's land and they came to build a racist white utopia. Their goal was to keep out or push out all people of color. Right. And you will see multiple academics who explain that Portland's reputation as a progressive city is, in their opinion, largely a myth. Winston Grady Willis, who's director of Portland State University's School of Gender, Race, and Nations, uh, points out that as of July 2015, Uh, The city had 612,206 people, 77.6% white, 5.8% black, and Grady Willis went on further to call it a key site for Klan activity. We know the Klan was very active there in the early 1900s as well. Yeah, I mean, apparently members of the Klan were actually Mm -hmm. cops. Yeah, they were deputized. Yeah, 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 yeah. like like, like as though they were sort of a uh, paramilitary organization given the same powers as like law enforcement right Mm -hmm. so not not a pretty scene but there is good news here this is a story of oppression but it is also a story of inspiration and righteous struggle for justice and equality there there was this great documentary called local color which traces the history of racism in oregon and the actions of people who are working for civil rights in the area. And of course, this, you know, this centers often on Portland itself, as it is the capital city of the state. Um, And to be honest, folks, 
there are some pretty disturbing stories in that documentary. But if you would like to learn more, we highly recommend you check it out. It is available for free online. So thanks again, public television. And so the 14th Amendment happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and pff, surprise, surprise, Oregon was one of, I think, only six states in the union that voted against it. And I had forgotten what the 14th Amendment is, but it is really hella important. Mm-hmm. This is what it says. All persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and of the state wherein they reside. Um, No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of law. So this completely neutered these exclusion rules. Right. So this was passed by Congress in 1866, And the explicit intention there is to safeguard the rights of recently manumitted or freed people in the South where a lot of the white population is working hard to still subjugate them, still Mm -hmm. somehow practice chattel slavery and forced labor. So Oregon actually, because it was a divisive issue, Oregon ratified the 14th Amendment by a very narrow margin in 1866 with two legislators protesting that the amendment would, quote, change, if not entirely destroy, the Republican form of government under which we live and crush American liberty. They also, uh, around the same time, passed law banning miscegenation or interracial marriages. Surely, Ben, there's some sort of fun food fact we can pull out now to lighten the (laughs) mood a little bit. Where do, well, we, where do we go from here? Well, we have, we've got one more thing I have to add. There's a great paper by Cheryl A. Brooks called Race, Politics, and Denial, Why Oregon Forgot to Ratify the 14th Amendment. Because you see, although they ratified it in 1866, in 1868, the legislature rescinded that ratification, and uh, they they did so on a technicality. So. They were still in an uncertain situation. In fact, these laws or some version of these exclusion laws stayed on the books until what, 1920s? Yeah, exactly. I think it was like 24 or something like that. Wow. It's insane. But we do have, luckily, a happy ending. Progress grinds on. Yeah, except, sorry, in 1922, a guy named Walter Pierce, Hmm. who was a Klan member, was elected governor of Oregon. And uh, there's this great quote uh, in this article from the Washington Post as well that just kind of goes back into the history of this, talking about how many of the Jim Crow laws um, that you'd see in the South were kind of encouraged there and, like, legal. Yeah. Yeah, they still tried to do de facto acts of oppression and segregation. And again, I I can't recommend that documentary enough because it, it contains interview. It's only about an hour long. Uh, You can find it through opb.org. It contains interviews with people who survived these circumstances. I feel like we're almost wrapping up on this, but there are a couple more things that we need to mention. Yeah, well, just the fact that, you know, it's come a long way, obviously, and Portland still does have that reputation as being a pretty culturally interesting um, dream of the 90s kind of place, but... 
in even like in the eighties and nineties, um, especially in Portland, it was very dangerous to mm-hmm. be um, a a person of color. This Washington Post article mentions the fact that it was just a hotbed of skinhead movement and white supremacy. And I'm not sure if you've seen the movie uh, Green Room. Yep. I where, was wondering when that would come yeah, up. Yeah, Patrick Stewart plays the head of this neo-Nazi group that has like a punk rock house <laughs> out in the woods mm-hmm. and uh, it's pretty intense and, and awful and, and a really, really cool little slice of life kind of, I don't know, it's a horror in that there's a lot of crazy stuff that happens, but it's really just more like a very contained, claustrophobic movie where it all kind of takes place in this one, yeah. one space. I feel like it's a more, almost more of a thriller yeah. to me. Yeah, it is. It's so weird seeing Patrick Stewart play a psychotic neo-Nazi. A though. very restrained, subtle performance from uh, Patrick as well. I just call him Patrick. But, uh, yeah, but it's true. So Oregon in the 1980s and 1990s became a destination for the largest skinhead movement in the country, according to several scholars. And you can see, unfortunately, no shortage of stories of racially motivated hate crimes. Yeah, there was that guy recently who was arrested for, uh, I believe, stabbing some people to death on a light rail train. Mm-hmm. Um, when he, uh, some folks came to the aid of an um, African-American woman and a Muslim woman who he was shouting racial epithets at, and then he, like, stabbed several people. And this happened... Like last year, right? Um, and his name is Jeremy Joseph Christian. And yeah, when he goes to this hearing, um, he walks into the courtroom and immediately starts rambling and saying, "Free speech or die, Portland. You call it terrorism, I call it patriotism." Right. So the circumstances of this event were the following: he was shouting religious slurs at several people. He fatally stabbed two people and wounded one other. This is indefensible. This is very much not what free speech is. And isn't it strange how some of the most ardent supporters of so-called free speech completely don't understand what it is? Yeah. No, it really is. And and admittedly, this guy does seem like he's got some um, mental illness going on. I, sure. I, I, that's just me speculating. But um, it's a sad, sad case and a sad example of how these kind of attitudes are around Mm-hmm. And possibly uh, given a little more fuel on the fire, considering some of the, you know, Nazi, neo-Nazi marches we're seeing in Charlottesville and some of these attitudes that have maybe come a little more into the forefront mm-hmm. of uh, not acceptability, but at least just kind of are being a little more mainstream these days. So um, it's interesting to see where it came from in a place yeah. like the Pacific Northwest. Which might surprise a lot of people. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position, warehouse worker 
retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer? Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Noel, do you remember your favorite car? Well, yeah, um, it was a uh, an Eddie Bauer edition Ford Explorer. Oh, that's and cool. I, yeah, I, I just remember it was my dad's. I, I was a hand me down car kind of kid. Dad would buy a new car. I'd get that car. And I just remember feeling so awesome being up above everybody like I was mm. in Mad Max or something. You know, I had a lot of uh, land yachts that I loved. I had Pontiac yeah. Bonnevilles. Right. Oh, I never had an El Camino. My dad had one. And that was a, that was a real interesting use of our collective time, keeping that thing running. But I think these cars all kind of speak to us because they were such a fundamental part of our lives. Do you remember when I had that Monte Carlo? That's what I meant. I, meant, I said El Camino <laughs> and I met Monte Carlo. I miss it. So uh, the Monte Carlo was tough. I had a series of Monte Carlos and the last one, God bless it. I just, I, I had to learn a lot about car maintenance just to keep that guy running. Totally. It, it still was like a, a perfect fit. It's almost like finding your true love. Uh, you know, like when you recently got a car a few years back now, Oh, man. And funny you should say that. That particular perfect fit was the Honda Fit, which I love dearly. But, Ben, it's getting a little long in the tooth. And while it's been incredibly reliable up to now, it's getting to that age where I might have to start looking for some parts here and there to keep it running. Mm -hmm. And that's where eBay Motors comes in. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, roof racks, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. So keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. The long story short, too late, the exclusion clause that we examined today was ultimately removed from Oregon's Constitution in 1927. Uh, however, as we, I think, have pretty clearly established, that did not remove the actual practices of racial segregation and discrimination. But there's one thing, one, one more thing I think we should add because we, we've been talking about the state, right? We've been talking about the territory. We've been talking about the people. But we have yet to talk in detail about the guy who was at the forefront of it all. We have yet to talk in detail about Peter Hardiman Burnett, who some would call a real bastard. Yeah. And he also managed to make it all the way down the Oregon Trail and not even get uh, dysentery. dysentery. Right, or die of exposure. Yeah, he was just a dick. Well, how about this? This is a surprise that we, Noel and Casey and I, worked on uh, for you all off air. What if we have a little extra credit? Yeah. 
That's right, folks. Extra credit, the segment wherein we um, get, you know, some human person that's tangentially familiar with the topic um, <laughs> by varying degrees. Mm-hmm. Uh, my favorite of late uh, has been uh, the Colonel Gladwin Bolin. Oh boy, man, he really he really set the internet on fire with that uh, segment. I People let him into love the... <laughs> Gladwin. I let him into the Facebook group, folks. So. I, I hope we're all still cool. Did you create a monster? I don't know. I don't know. Well, today we have another quite informed uh, gentleman joining us, the host of the new How Stuff Works show, Behind the Bastards, which does deep dives into horrible people throughout history, from Saddam Hussein's um, hobby writing erotic fiction Ooh. to Hitler's spanking fetish, I believe. Friends and neighbors, Ben, if I may. <laughs> Robert Evans. Hey, y'all. How's it cracking? Man, it's 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 weird. It's, it's, it's weird it's, in I, here. There's been a lot of, like, silent head shaking on this episode, mm-hmm. which doesn't really translate super well on the podcast. But, yeah, who knew? Yeah, we, I mean, we're talking about Oregon, which is, if you, like, yeah, if you go to, like, Portland or whatever, it seems on the up and up. I've spent a lot of the last three years in, like, rural southern Oregon, and mm. it's it's a pretty racist place. Like, Josephine County, where I was, is chock full of Nazis. Like there are quite a lot of them out there. So it's 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 a fascinating place. Even in the modern day? Oh yeah. Yeah, tons of them. It's one of the most racist counties and one of the highest densities of hate groups anywhere in the United States. Chock full of Nazis as it turns out, not a good coffee chock brand. Full of Nazis. No. No, terrible coffee, <laughs> terrible craft beer that the Nazis make. Yeah. So when we when we originally talked uh off air Robert, one of the things that we were very interested in both as colleagues, but also as fans of your show uh, was seeing whether there was a specific person associated with the, uh, the supremacist origins of Oregon. Kind of setting the tone mm-hmm, that we could, we could learn a little bit more about with you. Uh, and you found the guy, right? Oh my God. I sure did. I think Peter Burnett, I think Peter was his first name. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, just a tremendous piece of crap. Uh, and maybe, like, you know, there's a long list of, of super racist politicians in American history, but he's in the running for most racist. Uh, he's, he's, he's definitely, like, in that conversation for sure. Yeah, we set him up briefly as just ha- having been the one that kind of came up with the idea of these exclusionary laws early on before Oregon became a state. And he loved this idea so much that he named it after himself, the Burnett Lash Law, which um, yeah. permitted uh, black people who refused to leave the state to be given lashes like every every like, six months, six months or something like that. And he loved it so much. That it was such a genius idea. The Burnett Lash Law. Yeah, he was so proud of his his whipping people rule that he stuck his name on it, which is a special kind of of terrible. Um, But he was actually like a violent jerk way before he went to Oregon. When he was still living in Clear Creek, Tennessee, he was a shop owner, like a general store owner. Mm -hmm. He suspected this enslaved black man was every now and then breaking into his store at night to drink from his whiskey barrel because they they stored whiskey in barrels back then. It was a it was a different time. So <laughs> right. he, rather than like taking any of the other actions you might take in this situation, he sets a trap using a rifle with like a string tied to the trigger, tied to the window shutter. Holy smokes. So that when the guy crawled in in the middle of the night, this rifle shot him dead. And he wasn't charged with the crime because it was an enslaved man and he said he was sorry. But that's like Peter Burnett before he gets into politics. They must have had like a stand your ground law back in those days too, I guess. 
I just don't think they had laws. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, yeah. you're talking about the 1820s or whatever. Like, there was no rules. Yeah. And that's such a cartoonish <laughs> uh, sort of Rube Goldberg-esque kind of contraption. Yeah, he probably got the kit from Acme. That's insane. Okay, go on. Give us more. Yeah. So one of his early jobs before he gets off to Oregon, I think after he murders this guy with a Looney Tunes trap, is uh, he's a lawyer. And some of his probably his most prominent clients were Joseph Smith, founder of the Mormon religion, and all of Joseph Smith's, you know, apostles or whatever, all of his friends, because they were on trial for kind of sort of fomenting a frontier war that had, had broken out in and around Missouri. And so he he is these guys' lawyer, and his main achievement as a lawyer seems to be getting the venue changed that the court case was being held in. And this venue change allowed Joseph Smith and all of his guys to escape and run away. Uh, and, and yeah, so that, that's his career as a lawyer before he, he gets on that first big wagon train to Oregon for the great migration and whatnot. Oh, wow. Yeah. So y'all already covered, yeah, he made the lash law, he made the exclusion law, um, which he was, he was an abolitionist, but he's like an interesting, like we, we think when we, when you hear about abolitionists in the pre-Civil War era, you usually think about just the few people who would have been like on the right side of history, but mm -hmm. some of them were just abolitionists because they were that racist. They were so racist. And that was Peter Burnett. He was abolitionist that because he didn't like the idea of there being black people anywhere in his state. Uh, and he thought that slave labor was bad for white people. So he was like, he wound up the right conclusion, which is that slavery was a bad thing, but mm -hmm. he wound up there through like the most racist chain of logic that he could have possibly gotten to, which is always Interesting to me. That was a sentiment that was big time shared by the majority of people in Oregon because yeah. when they did incorporate and become a state, um, the majority of people voted against slavery but also for ousting all the freed black people. Yeah. And I, I did find when I was doing my research that in 1840 at least, Burnett had uh, two of his slaves of his own. And this is back when he was living in Missouri. Mm -hmm. um, and there's some evidence that when he immigrated to Oregon, he tried to bring one slave with him, a young girl who drowned in the Columbia River during the voyage. So not a lot of – it's kind of an enticing piece of like what was going on there. But that that's all the info I found so far on that. Right, because she was projected to be somewhere between 10 to 24 or something. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it seems like it might be kind of a creepy Thomas Jefferson sort of situation there. Yeah, I suspected that as well. Yeah. So this guy we've talked about, like, or y'all talked about what he did in Oregon. But after he got done in Oregon, this dude moved to California. And he became, in 1849, the first governor of California. Uh, of the state of California. So California's very first leader as a state in the union was this guy, Peter Burnett, uh, who did a lot of terrible things. M maybe my favorite thing he did that isn't terrible was in 1850, he changed uh, Thanksgiving that year from a Thursday to a Saturday just because it was better for him personally that year <laughs> to do it on a different day. Is... I mean, I can I can get behind that. It's always <laughs> weird to me that Thanksgiving's on a Thursday. yeah. That, that's whimsical and fun. But he mm -hmm. also tried to bring racial exclusion to California. With the Chinese, right? Uh, well, first with black people. Uh, he first tried to, uh, in his first message to the California legislature, he called exclusion um, like the first important, like an issue of the first importance, the most important thing that California could do. Because um, he thought black people were going to take jobs from white people and that they would be unhappy in California and cause disruption because they would be second class citizens because he wasn't going to let them be anything but second class citizens. 
so yeah, he tried to, there were like a thousand black people already in California, many of them free, and he tried to have them all kicked out mm -hmm. um, and to stop any more from settling. And that was too racist for 1850s California. So he lost on that. And he wound up actually like in 1851 quitting being the governor over this because he tried a couple of times to get California to ban black people and they just wouldn't do it. And yeah, I mean, there's some pretty, pretty racist quotes from him that I could read, but that's probably not necessary. Um, but it is fun to note that after he was no longer uh, governor and after his political career was over, um, as, you know, the world continued to advance and modernize in his old age, yeah, his crusade, as you mentioned, was trying to stop the Chinese from coming to California. Mm -hmm. So he was just just comprehensively racist across the board every chance he he got which is impressive in a terrible way. Yeah, at least you can say he was consistent, but honestly, good on you, California, for anyone listening uh, <laughs> who is in the state right now. Uh, I think that speaks very highly to the character of the state, even as far back as the 1850s. Uh, he he also published an autobiography, right, at some point? Yeah, that that's where he started ranting about uh, Chinese immigration, yeah. But Robert, surely he got some sort of amazing comeuppance, right? Like burned to death in a fire, you know, drowned under suspicious circumstances. Give me something. Got in a fight with a locomotive? No, I mean, I, I think he died rich and old. He was in his 80s or something. Oh, man, yeah. that's a bummer. I know, it's just, well, that's what always happens with these bastards, right? I mean, I bet you're seeing that a yeah. lot. Except you did the Cosby episode. He kind of got his comeuppance. But even that's sort of like a Pyrrhic victory where it's like too little too late for a guy that's been screwing people over for years, un, you know, unchecked. Yeah, every now and then you get a Mussolini or a Gaddafi where they get... Mm -hmm dragged out into the street and punished by the people that they spent decades screwing with. But that's almost that almost never happens. Usually they die rich in a villa somewhere. I'm really glad that you said this, Robert, because I was listening to the Gaddafi episode, which I thought was fantastic. Uh, and I'm, I'm still preparing myself to check out the Weinstein episode, which is a two-parter, correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That one's a big one. What we'd like to do is, again, thank you for giving us more insight on the life of Peter Hardeman Burnett. Screw that guy. Yeah, I know, right? To the max. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, but yeah. we were wondering if you could tell our, uh, if you could tell our fellow listeners here a little bit more about Behind the Bastards and what they can expect when they tune into your show. Well, I mean, our goal is to tell you everything you don't know about the very worst people in all of history. So, you know, you've probably sat, you know, stoned or whatever in your underpants and watched a lot of documentaries about Hitler on the History Channel over the years. But you probably don't know that he based a lot of his military strategies and his, like, attitudes on existence and life on a series of young adult novels that were basically like the German equivalent of Harry Potter back in the 1800s. Oh, wow. Um, you know, and, and for that matter, while we're on the subject of novelists, you probably haven't read Saddam Hussein's romance novels, but I have, and that's one of the things we get into in this podcast. I referred to it as erotic fiction. Was that, was that a, a bridge yeah. too far? No, no, it is very erotic. In fact, there's a long passage where an elderly woman yells at children about how sexy mouths are. So that's, it's fun. Yeah. Aren't those novels in particular uh, largely considered these megalomaniacal analogies about his relationship with the country? 
Yes. Um, and they're, they're, it's one of those weird things. There's a lot of cases like with the Kims in North Korea of mm-hmm. art being credited to dictators who didn't actually make it. Um, Saddam definitely wrote these books and we get into that to an extent, but they're like, they're a mix of rants about modern politics and like utopian fiction. Um, and so it's like a mix of Saddam screaming at the people he hates and trying to set up the ideal government that he never quite got to make in Iraq. It's, it's a really strange insight into what was going on in the man's head. That's fascinating. I want to, I want to tune in and uh, no spoilers, but uh, could you tell us a little bit about some episodes that are coming up soon? Yeah, today, uh, right now, uh, there is a new episode on Paul Manafort, part one of which just dropped and part two of which will be up Thursday. So that's a, that's a big one. I check that out. And um, we've, we've been doing an ongoing series about King Leopold of Belgium and the Congo, and we're recording an episode today about what happened after Leopold, who is one of the worst people in all of history and doesn't get, you know, enough uh, acknowledgement for just how terrible he was. Agreed. And we're also recording an episode about the uh, serial killer Albert Fish with his, uh, oh. one of his descendants, um, who is all a comedian in L.A. today. So that's going to be fun. Oh, man. That's fascinating. Yeah, we got a good good slate. Well, we are going to wrap it up today. We want to thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, Robert Evans, friends and neighbors, the mastermind behind one of How Stuff Works' newest podcasts, Behind the Bastards. If you like our show, you will love this one. In the meantime, you can find uh, Noel, Casey, and I, and Robert as well, on social media in 2018, right? It's yeah, everywhere. We're all over the place. With Facebook, mm-hmm. the Instagram, the, we're still working on the Pinterest page. We haven't we haven't committed yet, but we're, we we'll, we'll, we'll get there. Creative differences. Yeah, it's true. And you can join our Facebook community at Ridiculous Historians, where there's all kinds of memery and fun chats going on all the time. Or if you don't want to do any of that, write us an email at ridiculous at howstuffworks.com. And we'll see you soon. Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.